0: I hope you uh, would take a moment to consider uh, what Lisa and uh, the team there with the Masters Minute has put together for you to think about uh, this coming um, October, early October, and so pay attention to signups. And uh, really what I'd encourage you with is just to really pause, have a moment of reflection on that, uh, maybe not right now, but just to think, what, what am I doing that week? Why am I signing up? Uh, why am I going? Why is it important to know my community? More importantly, why is it important to push outside of what I'm learning here and to share the love of Christ with those around, whether it's L.A. or down the street, 30 seconds away, or as David showed us, a stone's throw away. Good job, David. Um, Wismer. Anyway, uh, as we consider our theme for chapel this year being Christ's likeness, I was thinking about what I might share with you this morning as we think about matters of the heart on Mondays. And uh, it's, um, I just want <clears throat> to level with you here at the, at the beginning of chapel and uh, share my concern for the uh, perennial master's university student that comes through. It's this. One thing that's always been a concern on my mind and it started to press upon me as in my time here in my undergrad was, why do I act different outside of master's than when I do with all of God's people around me? Why do, why do, why do I act the way I act, um, maybe even down the street or uh, around the world or back home or two hours away, wherever it might be at the beach? Why don't I act the same? When I'm in a different environment, I act like that environment. When I'm in this environment, I act like this environment. That always was a concern to me as an undergrad and it still presses upon me for you today who have come from many thousands of miles, maybe some minutes away in Newhall or Saugus, right around the L.A. area, but I want to share with you this morning um, just maybe that concern, and that's why I chose the topic I did this morning, and that is that it's always a concern that every student knows how their heart truly functions inside the context of the Master's University, so that when you go out from the Master's University, it makes sense to you why you act the way you act. That you understand yourself on the level of the heart to know why you do what you do when you're here. Maybe it's more acts of righteousness. And then why you do what you do when you're outside of the Master's University. I've often thought of the Master's University as, in in good ways as uh, somewhat like a spiritual river that we might jump into at the beginning of the year. Maybe at the beginning of your undergrad education, it's a spiritual river, and there's a current to rivers, right? Rivers have currents. You might even be paddling in the river downstream. But you're not really tested if you know how to swim, if you will, or um, raft on your own at once, once the current changes. And then I think that's the shock that some students feel When they graduate from the Master's University and they may be surprised at all the pushback they receive from those around them, those in their own family, those in their workplace. So it's always a concern of mine to help you prepare for that moment. That you would understand, understand your own heart, understand uh, the nature of why you do what you do. And I think of that verse that Paul writes in Philippians 2 where he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're surrounded, you know that, we're surrounded and encouraged and strengthened by one another on a day-in, day-out basis. But you know, as well as I do, that you don't want to stay here forever. This is a great experience, but the point wasn't to stay at the university, right? you're applying for colleges and universities, the point wasn't to go to university the rest of your entire life. The point is to be educated and move on. I want to help you do that. So as we're considering being like Christ this year, I wanted to have have us take a look this morning into the heart of Christ, if you will. And I think we get to see that on full display when he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. So will you turn to Luke chapter 4, and we'll be studying the first few verses of that chapter. Luke chapter 4. As we come to this uh, passage, let me just uh, perhaps set the background in chapter 3. Jesus has just been baptized. Jesus has had audible authentication from the Father. Speak to him from heaven and visible authentication from the Spirit descending like a dove, resting upon him. John the Baptist says he witnessed that, or the Gospel of John says that John witnessed that. So the Father has just said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The next moment, we go out to the wilderness. What's happening there? Let's look at the first couple of verses here to set the context. It says, 4, verse 1 says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, Returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and and when they were ended, he was hungry. Real quick here, let's set the context. We have the Judean wilderness somewhere, perhaps the wilderness across the Jordan, perhaps the wilderness way down in Sinai where the Israelites themselves wandered. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what wilderness it was. The point is, 40 days alone, fasting in a desolate place would have put Jesus in an incredibly vulnerable position. The most vulnerable position he's been in so far. From the outset of his ministry, Jesus is empowered by the Spirit, yet you see that in verses 1 and 2. You see he's full of the Spirit. You see... Uh, verse 1 again, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Luke wants you to pay attention to something here. Jesus is empowered and led by the Spirit. This is the Spirit's mission that he's sending Jesus on. Where? To be tempted by the devil. It's interesting that one commentator pointed out that even though, I think there's a play on words here, even though Jesus was physically empty, depleted of energy, depleted of, of, of nutrients, Obviously, his stomach was empty when it says, literally, he was hungry. But yet, what was he full of? He was full of the Spirit. Nothing could have put Jesus in a better place, and oftentimes the reverse is true of us, isn't it? We might be full of food and devoid of the Spirit. But Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, wandering in the wilderness, most likely communing with God, much like Elijah did, in his 40-day fast, much like Moses did in his 40-day fast. Jesus replicates that here before his ministry, before he even gets out of the gate. Jesus is tempted. I want to look at that this morning. I want to examine, uh, some of you have probably watched film. If you're an athlete, you've probably watched film at some point. If you're not an athlete, you've watched some type of film. You know that you can stop it, examine a scene, go back and say, what, let's break this down. What was really happening here? That helps athletes become better athletes. As a, as, a, as a high schooler, I was completely impatient on those days. I'm like, what are we doing in here? Let's get back out to practice. This is a waste of time. And so foolishly saying, not seeing, hey, Dave, this actually helps you become a better athlete if you would take the time to slow down and see why did you take that route instead of this one? Why didn't you run this play in this moment, in this situation? Why didn't you read the defense there? Let's slow it down, pause it, let's, let's pick apart your activity on the court and let's, let's be better next week, next game. That's what we want to do this morning with the temptation of Christ. It's, one, it's a wonderful inspiration of the, of the Spirit to give us this. Nobody witnessed this except Christ alone. So somehow the Spirit inspired both Matthew, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke to write this down and that we get to learn from it. So I want to pick apart the temptations of Christ this morning and and see what lessons we might learn by slowing down the tape. All right, let's read the rest of the passage in in verses uh, 3 through 13. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, To the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I wanted to see a few things of of each temptation here. First of all, really the calculated attack of Satan. In every every temptation, you're going to see a, a constructed, calculated attack from the devil himself, aimed at breaking Jesus. What was he trying to break? He was trying to break relationship with jesus and the father he's trying to get jesus to go his own way rather than to be dependent upon god the father he's trying to end the most important mission that has ever been lined up in the history of mankind that is for christ to come and redeem sinners satan is trying to disrupt that another thing i want us to see is really what the essence of temptation is so satan's saying one thing obviously he's getting to another I want us to slow it down and say, okay, what did Satan say? Now, what is, what is Satan actually saying or not saying? What is the essence of the temptation? What is Satan trying to get at with Christ? Then I want us to see what, how Jesus responds to that temptation and why he responds in such, uh, such a way. And then maybe some summary points to have some walkaways for you right here, right now. As you examine the life of Christ, as you examine the heart of Christ, why he did what he did when he did it, that that might be an encouragement, an example to follow even today. So temptation number one, you see it there in verses three and four. Temptation number one is this. If you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you're the son of God, Satan says to to Jesus, hey, right here, right now, make this stone into bread. Uh, Here's what the temptation is. Use your power, Jesus, use your power to satisfy your immediate needs. And it's it's important here that it's not an immediate want, but that it's an immediate need. Luke is very obvious here in his his saying he's fasting, and then at the very end, he reemphasizes he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. This is a real temptation. Just like you feel hunger pangs. Jesus felt the same thing, only 40 times as much, maybe a 1,000 times as much. I would venture to say that no one here has probably done a 40-day fast. It'd be very unlikely. Even to go one day to test yourself without food, it's almost the only thing you can think about is food. Jesus goes for 40 days, and it says he was hungry. So Satan aims the attack right at where Jesus is feeling vulnerable. He was hungry. Notice how he addresses Jesus. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you are the Son of God. Now here's what, here's what Satan's doing here. It's not saying, Hey, I don't think you're really the Son of God. So if you want to prove that you're the Son of God, do something really cool. Alright? Hey, here's a stone. Turn it to bread. That's not the, that's not the temptation going on. That's, that would be maybe for fun but that isn't really a huge temptation for Jesus. What what Satan is saying here is saying, since you are the Son of God, you were just approved by God 40 days ago and sent on this mission by the Spirit. And since you're the Son of God, I know who you are, Jesus. Use your power. There's an immediate need. You're hungry. There's a stone. You made You made the earth out of nothing. You set the stars in their place. You're hungry. Make this stone into bread. Satisfy your desires. What's the implication that Satan is not saying? What is going on behind the scenes? God led you out here. The Spirit pushed you into the wilderness to commune with God. This is how God treats you on your first 40 days of public ministry? You're going to trust this God who goes without feeding his children? Use your power, Jesus, use your power to take this shortcut and get what you actually need. Not what you want, but what you actually need. This is just a natural starting place for Satan to begin the temptation. And he immediately casts doubt on the claim that God has spoken. I'm well pleased with this son. Really? Well if God is well pleased with this son, why is He leaving you to starve in the wilderness? Will, will, will Jesus respond differently than Adam and Eve did in the garden? It's the same tactic we see picked up here by Satan is to immediately write this one down. It's to immediately cast doubt on what God has previously said. Satan is always after that in temptation. That he would, he would cast doubt and make us question what God has previously said. What, what, so what's the essence of the temptation itself? What is, what is Satan hiding here? This is what he's doing. Disobedient, immediate gratification in the context of legitimate need. Disobedient, immediate gratification in the context of legitimate need. That's what he's going for here. The temptation actually attacks the faith of Jesus in God the Father. That's what he's after. The temptation lies in appealing to Jesus' ability. He had the power. He could do this. This wasn't a fake temptation. This wasn't a, I, didn't, I wasn't really hungry, or Jesus can't really turn stones into bread. This is a legitimate way that Christ could begin to take a shortcut rather than going the hard, dependent suffering way of the Messiah for the next three and a half years Jesus could use his power to get his immediate needs satisfied Satan was inciting Jesus to become dissatisfied with God's provision impatient with God's timing Um, and, and, and when you put those two together and have the power that Jesus had, he's tempting him to say, you have the power to close the gap on this. God's slow, God's plan is, he's not satisfying your needs, and you can take the power in and of yourself and close the gap on this. So how does Jesus respond? Look at it. How does Jesus respond? Verse four, and Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It's famous, Passage quoted out of Math, I'm sorry, out of Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And just to give you a quick background for the rest of the uh, quotations for that come from Deuteronomy, uh, what was what happening here in Deuteronomy was that Moses was giving one last charge to the children of Israel before they entered the promised land. All right, they're on the east side of the Jordan near Jericho or opposite Jericho in the plains of Moab. And they have waited 40 years for this moment. And this generation was raised by the generation that tested God in the wilderness, that questioned God at every turn, that said, we're not going to go up. There's giants in that land. And then they said, actually, no, we made a mistake. We are going, we have to suffer in the wilderness. We're not going to do that. We'll, we'll, we'll take on, I'm sorry, we're sorry, Moses, we'll take on the enemy. We're going to go up in our own strength, and they got defeated and pushed back. Said, actually, this really isn't going to happen. You are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That generation has just died. That generation has just died. And Moses gives this last command to the Israelites, saying, hey, your, your fathers tested the Lord in the wilderness, They saw what God did. They saw the wonders that brought them out of Egypt, and they still questioned. They still questioned, and Jesus might be in this similar situation where he's seen God's power, God hasn't provided the bread, and yet Jesus is dependent and trusting every day in his Father. That's what Christ is quoting from in this passage of Scripture, which is is an amazing response. We'll, We'll probably pick up some more lessons on that later in Jesus quoting Scripture. But for now, it is what defeats the temptation. Man shall not live by bread alone. Satan, the only thing going on here is not my empty stomach. There's more important things in life. Jesus trusted God rather than his bleak circumstances. Did he feel hunger? Was he completely weak? 40 days? Have, has anybody been to the Judean wilderness? Ibex people, come on. Have we been there? Yes, we have. You've been someplace that's dry and rocky and desolate. And think about yourself being there even one night alone. One night. You're completely dependent upon the provision of God. Jesus was there for 40 days, wandering almost representatively as the, as the Israelites would have wandered. But he knew that his empty stomach was not the indicator of his relationship with God the Father. Jesus knew that his present circumstances did not reflect the love of God the Father for him, and that, and that would make him doubt. So he resisted the urge to use his power for a quick, quick loaf of bread. Look at the next attack. Look at the next attack from Satan. He says. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be it will all be yours. What's Satan doing here? Let's break that down a little bit there. He it's a little bit longer of, an exp- of, of, a, of a temptation. It's a little more calculated of an attack. It's not just, hey, you have a need, here's some stones, boom, let's do some bread. He's saying, okay, all right, let's, let's get serious here. And what, what happens here has to be a supernatural, vision-like situation that, that takes place. For Satan to show Jesus the world, all the kingdoms of the world, and I even think that would be today, this is all that's going to roll out in front of you, Jesus. You're going to rule every nation, every tribe, every people. Psalm 2 says that the Father will give these nations to his Son. So, is he just going to wait for it? Or is he going to snatch it? Is there, is there a shortcut to get the kingdom to get all kingdoms to have the the rule of the world for all time and avoid suffering. Satan is tempting him to do this. Get to the end. Get to the end, Jesus. Skip the suffering. Claim the crown now. Why wait for it? What's the implication? God's way is long. God's way is tedious. And it's without glory. The way you're which, about which you're to go, Jesus, is slow and down this road of suffering. Is Jesus going to take the bait? Avoid suffering by worshiping me, and I'll give you what you want. I hope you hear the word of God speaking to you this morning. <laughs> hope maybe um, transferring how Jesus was tempted to the ways in which our own hearts are tempted. Try to do that as we, as we walk through this this morning. Uh, Satan seems to say that, or seems to imply that, hey, all these kingdoms are mine and I'll give them to you. Is this true? Is it not true? Well, it is true, but it's not true. It's all under God's control, yet Satan is the one who is the ruler of the world. Everything is in the power of the evil one, Jesus says in John chapter 12. So he can give it, in a sense, but what is he he giving to Jesus? This is really where the, the essence of the temptation comes down to. If you worship me, you can bypass the suffering. You can have everything that God is going to give you at the end, but what does he not say to Jesus, of course? We still have sin, Jesus would have missed, the, it would be the ultimate winning of the battle and losing the war. Death would still reign. Death would not be defeated. Sure, we could have the cake and eat it too is what is happening here in this temptation. But if Christ would have been dissuaded at that moment, he would have rulership without having defeated death, the ultimate enemy. Satan knows this. But Jesus came, to conquer. Jesus came to conquer not just have a throne and rule over every kingdom, but Jesus came to conquer death. And I want us to think about this for a second before we we're like, yeah, that was, you know, of course that happened. You know, Jesus just resisted the temptation and uh, we move on. Remember, there was absolutely no glory to Jesus' life. We might praise him now because we understand the implications that happened at the cross. And the, the life of Jesus given to us. But think about his life. Was, there was no, remember what Isaiah 53 says, there was no form or majesty to him. We despised him, he had, there was nothing to look at there. That was the low road that Jesus was about to go down. So, how does Jesus respond? Verse 8. Look at verse 8. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. So Jesus responds with Scripture yet again from Deuteronomy. He says, you shall, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. This really just gets, this clarifies what the temptation was in the first place. And Jesus' response clarifies saying, This is, to worship anything other than God is direct sin and would have been a complete failure for the Son of Man to perfectly fulfill the law and all righteousness. It would have been an immediate disqualification for the Son who is to be faithful in all of God's house, as Hebrews 3, 6 says. So what's what's the conclusion here of this temptation? Satan tempts us to think That what we are being tempted with in this world is the only world that matters. You have to feel that. You have to know that. You have to understand that in temptation. Satan, your flesh, the world around you will tempt you thinking this linear relationship, this earthly relationship, what I have here, what I have now is the only thing that matters. And that's where his temptation assaults Christ. It's, it's a chief goal of Satan to keep our eyes fixed on earth, even to exchange earthly things for earthly things. As long as our mind, even if it's good things, as long as it stays down here and their eyes are not fixed on Christ or things above, Satan's a happy guy. Our flesh tempts us to say, the only thing valuable, the only thing worth thinking about is something in front of me. And this is where God's word is, Abiding on Christ's heart empowers him to see above the earthly temptation or the temporal temptation is another way to say it. It exposes the hook beneath the bait is what God's word does. It exposes the hook beneath the bait. Satan, of course, is only going to show you the bait. Your flesh is only going to present the bait. Never the hook behind it. And God's word gives us understanding that supersedes what we're really trying to figure out here on earth. Look at the last temptation, number three, verses nine through 12. He says, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Let's stop there. So he takes them to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. Why here? It's not completely clear, but it seems to be connected with obviously a great height, but also because he could take him to a cliff or a mountain anywhere. There's plenty of things to jump off and kill yourself in Israel. So he takes him to the temple. Why the temple? Probably most likely because of its proximity and nearness to God, which I think the temptation shows us what Satan's after on that. The point of a temple, the point of a high place, the point of the highest point of the temple is that if any man jumps from this point here, he's going to need some supernatural assistance to make it down Okay, unscathed. So Satan says, jump. Throw yourself off. What's he going for here? Look at verse 10. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Ask yourself a question. Who's speaking here? Who's speaking in verse 10 and 11? You can talk to me. Who's speaking? Satan. Whose word is it? God's. Did Satan just quote Scripture? Yes. Does Satan know Scripture? Yes. Is Satan trying to get Christ to abuse Scripture for his own purposes? Yes. Here's here's the catch. Verse, Verse 10 and 11 is from... Psalm 91, 11, and 12. Isn't that amazing? Satan is saying this. Okay, son of God, you seem to be full of Scripture. You seem to be leaning on Scripture and all these temptations that I'm giving to you. Let's go the scriptural route. Why don't we do that? Jesus, uh, he says right here, he'll command his angels concerning to guard you on their hands, they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is what Satan's saying. All right, we can, we can go there. Let's, let's, let's test the word of God. God's word has the ultimate say, right, Jesus? You, you bank, you're, you're, you're resisting me, and, and, and you're, you're not, a, you're not a falling for these temptations based on God's word. Let's go to God's word. Why don't you throw yourself off the temple and let God and his word be proven right, right here, right now? What's the temptation? What's the temptation that Satan is getting to? It's really to let go and let God. Make God prove himself. Make God, if you're the son of God, make God prove himself right now that he's got you and he will take care of you. That's what he's saying. So the essence of the temptation is really presuming upon God that he has to prove himself to you. It's not necessarily that Satan leaves a part of Psalm 91.11 out, although that's true. Not, he's not, like, necessarily twisting the words themselves. He's virtually taking a direct quote out of Scripture and saying to Jesus, abuse Scripture for your own ends. That's, a, that's, that's somewhat of a sobering thought, that's, that, that Satan can work in such a way to cause God's Word to work against itself. How does Jesus respond? I'm thankful that Jesus did not jump, but he said, he answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. Again, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16 this time. Replying, his, his, his reply really indicates what was the nature of the temptation itself. It was to test God. To test means this. It's to, it's to put somebody in a place where they have to respond. It, it, it really is to, to put somebody on trial to see how they will act. And in this case, it's putting God on trial to see how he will act. This is what Israel did in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 6, well, As being reminded in Deuteronomy six through eight, but the passage comes from Exodus seventeen, where it said, "Did you bring us out here to die, Moses? Is this a a sick joke? We get freed, we get freed out of out of Egypt, and only just to die here? At the first moment of a hunger pain, the first human feeling of thirst, the Israelites are ready to assault Moses and, and, and question the Lord." What are you doing? Why are you doing this? That's what the Israelites did to Moses. And that is what Satan is tempting Jesus to do right here. And this is why God was angry enough to put the whole Israelite generation to death, only saved by the intercessory prayer of Moses. And this is, this is why. Because they had seen the works that he had done. And in light of that, they said, What are you doing? Why are you bringing this out here? It's sheer unbelief. A commentator says this about the situation. This request for a sign would actually be an act of unbelief, masquerading as extraordinary faith. This request for a sign would actually be an act of unbelief, masquerading as extraordinary faith. If Jesus was to jump, would have put God in a position that might have seemed like faith Jesus had been, oh, well, I have faith, then I'll jump. But it actually was unbelief testing the God who said, I'll take care of you. Would God take care of his children? Yes. What's more important is to not put God's word to the test. I want to do some, uh, some walkaways here for you to think about today. Maybe you can, you can write a few of these down that might, we can, we can strain some principles off this passage that might help you even today. Number one, Temptation will find you. Temptation will find you and is specific to life's seasonal and immediate circumstances. Temptation will find you. The Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness not to sin but to be tempted by the devil. Sometimes I, I think we, we, we think we can just bat temptation away and say, d- uh, d- please, please, no, uh, I don't want to be tempted by that. Temptation forces you to engage with the temptation. I want you to learn that this morning. I want you to learn that about your heart. It's often tempting to say, oh, that's the temptation. Get away from me. Don't, don't be about that temptation. Don't be tempted with that. Turn away from it. There's, there's a principle, yes, that, that, uh, of wisdom to turn away from sin, yes. But you have to engage with the temptation, you have to slow the temptation down, break it apart, and, and say, why, why is this actually an allurement to me? Jesus, he was tempted to make a stone into bread. Why didn't Satan say, uh, why, don't you, uh, why don't you run around the world three times in one second? Go. Why wasn't it, uh, hey, see, uh, see the sun? Why don't you make the sun green? Go. That, that, wasn't, that wouldn't be a temptation that was actually appealing to something that Jesus had a desire for. Your temptation will find you and Satan will assault, your flesh will assault you in your immediate circumstances where you're really at, where you're really at. Temptation, just it seeks out our weaknesses. Another, another one, another point to take away is this. Temptation tests belief in somebody's word. There's always a conversation in temptation, okay? There's always a conversation taking place in temptation. When we're tempted to sin, somebody's voice is speaking. It's our own voice that's speaking. It's the world's voice that's speaking. Something is going, there's a conversation taking place. And here's what a believer must learn. The word, that's where the word of God comes in. If the word of God is absent and has no volume in that situation, we lose every time. We have to have God's word on our heart to the point that there's actually a justice system in our mind, in our heart taking place and saying, "Do I want to exchange these two things?" There's a presentation to sin. And we will sin every single time if there's no presentation to obey God's promises. If there's nothing on the other side of the scales to say, you have a choice here. This is how sin works. So temptation always is testing the belief in somebody's word. And there's different voices have different volumes. It could be someone in your ear from your past. It could be the way you were raised. It could be your flesh. It could be... Voices that you legitimately hear. It could be your feelings. Every single one of those has to, be, has to come up and be tested and say, okay, got it, feel that, want that, desire that, but what does God's word say about that? Okay? Here's another one. When faced with temptation, ask what is behind, what, what is the bait behind? Sorry, what is the hook behind the bait in this situation? What is the bait behind the hook? What's not being said here? What is not being presented to me? What does God say? And why does why does this shortcut, why does the shortcut sound better? If I go this route, if I harbor this bitter thought. If I take the shortcut at work, at practice, if I dwell on that thought, what does it get me? How, does it, how, does it, how is it lying to me and saying, this will save you a lot of work? This shortcut is a great deal. Ask yourself that in the moment of temptation, in the midst of temptation, to say, what is really going on here? Here's another one. Satan, our flesh, always tempts in the world of reality and unreality. There's always two things going on. In every single one of these temptations, there's a bit of truth, and there's a whole lot of lie. There's a whole lot of distortion. Ask yourself that when you're tempted. What is the truth, and what is the lie in this situation, and how can I use the word of God to cut between the two? Here's another one. We know that Jesus sympathizes with our weakness, right? In Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus does not sympathize with the experience of our sin. Jesus does not sympathize with the experience of the sin. He sympathizes with the suffering endured in the temptation. That is why he can be a faithful high priest to us. Jesus gets it. Jesus suffered more than you or I have ever suffered in any temptation because he suffered all the way. Here, listen to this quote. The force of a temptation depends not upon the sin involved in what is proposed, but upon the advantage connected with it. The force of temptation depends... Not upon the sin involved in what is proposed, but upon the advantage connected with it. There was an advantage connected with everything presented to Jesus. That was the temptation. Skip the hard stuff, Jesus. Get to the end. That's what temptation really boils down to. I want to end with this last, this last uh, tip for you. Sounds a little trite, but A walk away. Temptation often comes because we have been adopted as sons and daughters. Temptation often comes in the form of antinomianism because we are adopted sons and daughters. What do I mean by that? Every appeal was, if you're the son of God, why don't you do this? Why don't you go off track? Why don't you go off script? Why don't you do your own thing? You're the son of God, aren't you? Do what you gotta do. Go your own way. You don't need to be dependent upon God. That is in every temptation. Hey, you have this status. Abuse it. Is Satan that clear? And when he says that, of course not. But is that really what's going on in the temptation? Yes. And I want to end with this passage to encourage us from Hebrews chapter 2. It's a beautiful uh, reflection on what was taking place in this moment in the wilderness. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 10 through 18, and let this end our time. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, or complete through suffering. In other words, Jesus Christ, this is a crazy thought, Jesus Christ was not complete for his atonement of our lives and our sin until he had gone through every temptation. What a, what a wild thought. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's a side thought for a second. Verse 15, And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death brings fear. Freedom from death that fear comes by knowing Jesus has conquered death. Verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now here's the encouraging word to us. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What an encouragement to know that as Adam and Eve failed in the garden, Christ succeeded in the wilderness. As the Israelites completely choked at the first sign of hunger, Christ goes 40 days and still does not sin in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days. Where Israel failed, Christ succeeded. Where we fail, Christ succeeded. He says, for he himself has suffered when tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Our Father, we need you. Christ, we're thankful that you passed every temptation. And we know that Satan walked away for a moment, yet was looking for an opportune time to come and interrupt your plan of redemption yet again. And Father, we are thankful that Christ succeeded where Israel failed, where Adam failed, and where we fail. God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts to understand the heart of Christ in the midst of temptation and to know how to be more aware, Lord, of your word activating our heart in those moments. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that are sensitive and tender to what you would speak to us. Use your word to guide us, to protect us, to to glorify you in our own lives. As Christ depended on you, so might we. And I pray you would bless this week. I pray that you would bless this semester. I pray that you would bless these young men and young women to cling to you, Lord, in their time here at Masters and ready themselves for being more uh, fully exposed, more alone. Lord, it's good to be together, but we're, we are tested when we are alone. Father, strengthen us, I pray, this morning and, and for our walk with you. Pray in Jesus' name.